Hey everyone, it's John Kerwin here and I'm really excited as this is my podcast called Open Minded. This podcast is interviewing inspirational people from all walks of life. You know, I want to give you the real stuff that's happening every day in the minds of these leaders, how they stay well in high pressure roles, how they build resilience in themselves, how they look after their people and how can you invest in yourself and your people to do mental well-being well. So this is JK and this is Open Minded. So let's go. Welcome to Open Minded. I'm John Kerwin. And today I'm joined by Taz Main, but she likes to be called Taz or doesn't mind being called Taz, but like me being called JK. So Taz Good, she's a well-being consultant and the managing director of the 360 Academy, operating out of Melbourne, Australia. And we all know how hard Melbourne's uh, done the COVID journey. She is also a strong advocate for diversity, equity and inclusion, and is about to launch a new program, Empowered, working with disadvantaged communities across Australia to improve their mental well-being and create pathways into the workforce. That is so cool. We'll dive into that. Welcome. I'm so pumped to have you on the show. I was so excited that when we when we got on the pre-show, all I did was talk, so I apologise for that. So, <laughs> I love it. We connected over music. That's what it's all yeah, about. Yeah, we had that music conversation, right? But before we jump into some of those discussions, tell me a little bit about yourself, because I can hint a little, I can sense and hint a little bit of uh, South Africa in the... A little bit, just a smidge. Yeah, <laughs> I grew up in South Africa. I am um, an avid Springbok supporter. So when I told my dad about being on the show with you, he was all excited for me and all of that stuff. So I'd like to tell you, I'm really happy to be here with you too. Um, I moved to Australia. I feel like COVID time has almost just changed everything. It's time warped a few things. So what feels like five years, I think it's about seven or eight years. Um, yep, been here and loving life. It's ironic. Moved here for freedom and then got locked down for two years. <laughs> <laughs> nice. One of the one of the most amazing uh, memories I have of South Africa was the All Blacks were the first team back after apartheid, and we had a barbecue or a braai, as you would call it. Braai. Yes. I tell you, my boot. We had a braai. Um, we had a braai two k under the ground in Johannesburg because the Springboks were there, the All Blacks were there, but so was Nelson Mandela. The Clerk and our Prime Minister at the time, which was Bolger, was the most amazing um, experience ever. But wow. I, was, I was I was still dealing with my mental health. I had an anxiety attack about 34, 40 minutes into it, and I just went straight to the surface. But, but yeah, interesting. So tell me. Huh? Never mind. We can get back to that. I was going to say, where was it? I'm not sure. I just, remember, I just remember being in this lift and going down the shaft forever. You know, it's probably, you, you know, I, I say to people, why ruin a good story, you know, with the facts or the truth? <laughs> I, it probably wasn't 2K downs, but it was way, way too far under the ground for my for my liking at the time, you know. <laughs> uh, I love it. But you were there with Mandela, so that's cool. Yeah, that's very, very cool. Very cool. Um, first up, tell us tell us a little bit about about, you know, your 360 Academy. What was the reason you started it? What was the gap in the workforce education that you were looking to address? Because it's such a cool idea. Thank you. Um, I can say, so when I pitch this, I talk about it being born out of COVID, but really that's just where it came onto paper. I think it comes from a background in coming from somewhere that is so diverse. Um, I love that you've touched on Nelson Mandela. My whole upbringing was all about diversity and inclusion and being the rainbow nation like there's a space for everybody and that's what it's almost just been ingrained in me all along um and then moving to australia obviously when i immigrated it's quite obvious that i've got a bit of an accent um and you come across some resistance specifically in the recruitment field because it's a really tight-knit community um or network i should say and I was, I specialized in supply chain and manufacturing, which was pretty male dominant industry, really tight network as I've spoken about. And a lot of the people that I was bringing into interviews and speaking with, although they were like highly skilled and very educated and brought over by the Australian government to come in because their skills were recognized on the skill shortage list, they weren't being given a chance in 
Australian workforce because they had no experience. So from a diversity point of view, that always kind of stumped me about Australia and that just went on in the back of my mind. And then I was hired to do a few special projects in diversity and inclusion. So specifically in heavy industry like um, metal, construction materials, those sorts of things, finding women and bringing them into the industry. Um, I did a lot of app placement work with some really senior guys from FMCG and trying to get them back into the market after redundancy. They would be talking about their barriers, like nobody wants to hire them because of their age. Um, I'd be speaking to, I did a program for international students, trying to get them in as grads, but because they had no Australian experience or so, that was their barrier to employment. So almost like everywhere you look, if you don't fit into this perfect little cube that slots into the mainstream corporate system, there's no place for you to work. Um, and that was really, it's just baffling really, when you think about the world and all the people around us and how much everybody's got to give. So anyway, life carried on, carried on recruiting, doing my thing, talking about it and being an ambassador where I could, finding ways around, and then COVID hit. Um, and supply chain and logistics went through the roof. There was more demand than what people could deal with. We had industry shut down, like the aviation industry. We had uh, catering, hospitality, all of those shutting down. But then on the other side, we had this polarization of, for example, supply chain logistics, warehousing, they were just booming and they, they weren't enough people. So the conversations organically started happening around, well, there are people, they're just not from your industry and they might not look like the way you like your people usually to look and they might be a different gender or they might have different ways of learning or they speak a different language as their first language, let's just have a conversation. And that's where it's grown from. Um, so the business, the, the key employer that we work with, the business said, yes, let's do this. We can definitely see merits in it. Let's give it a go. We focused on transferable skill and getting people in. But then when we started speaking to people who were unemployed and going through this extensive like long lasting trauma where nobody was seeing the end of it in our lockdowns, we were more than a year in, they were going, but we faced all of these rejections and little microaggressions along the way. We're too scared. We're too anxious. What do we do? We can't go into a new workforce. There's too much change going on. We just can't deal. We just want to stay safe, physically and psychologically safe in their homes. And then that's where the program just started building out. So it was focused on the, the job seeker and then it went to the employer and went, this is where the problem is. Okay, let's open their eyes for a little bit, just tiny changes at a time. And then we go back to the job seeker and we go, okay, now let's build on some of your skills. Not skills in warehousing, supply chain logistics, skills as in resilience and creating your own psychological safety and coming across, um, working over your barriers that you've got in your mind, stripping yourself from your labels, um, celebrating your wins when they do happen. And this is where we are. And, and so tell me, by that collision of natural and unnatural forces, so is, is that where you started thinking about the Wellness Hub as well, which is one of your other projects? Because you can't really, um, and I'm going to talk to you about unconscious bias shortly, but, you know, you can't, one thing people don't realize is the anxiety of, of actually changing and, and getting into a new job. Mm, absolutely. And that's a big part. So I think I do, I feel like this is just the most beautiful universal collision of skills and good stuff and bad stuff that's happened throughout my life and career to bring me to this point. But in my, like my corporate recruitment experiences always mid to senior level management. And when I speak to job seekers who are unemployed, I talk to them about your anxiety and your nerves are 100% normal. When I tell you that the 250K earners that run businesses and host meetings and make million dollar decisions have these nerves when they go for interviews or when they're changing jobs or anything like that, that is normal. Everybody experiences that. So it's very much part of it. Um, the anxiety piece was normal before COVID. Put COVID on top as an extra layer and it just 
skyrocketed everything. Um, but I'm going to circle back to the Wellness Hub. So Wellness Hub was probably where I took my personal experience and learnings and all of that stuff and put it into the corporate space. So I was in recruitment. I was doing the diversity and inclusion and working those special projects in the agency that I was working with. And a opportunity came up to start a new division within the business for well-being, knowing that people were stressed. So what was happening and what we were seeing was we had an EAP provider or we had an EAP service and clients were phoning and they would say things like, we know our people are struggling. Why is the uptake not increasing? Like, why are we still sitting at 1% uptake? We know people are struggling. Why are they not phoning for help? So we started to investigate all of that, which got me into the science of well-being um, and learning all about the proactive tools and what the barriers are to people using um, EAPs. So it's the same barriers you would know this. It's the same barriers reaching out and saying, hey, I've, I don't know if this is depression or, hey, I need to speak to a professional or I had an anxiety attack. People don't like to do that. And I'm not sure about in New Zealand, but in Australia, certainly. And this is also, actually, I'm going to go down my own little rabbit hole here. But um, this is where cultural differences make such an impact um, and how diversity and inclusion is Im impacts well-being in a company. So, for example, in South Africa, you don't even talk about depression. Like, I was held at gunpoint and the next day I went to work. Um, I, whereas here you'd be given mental health leave. It would be like, whoa, um, little things like that. Little things like that. Sorry, I'm going to have to stop you there, but, um, you get a gun put in your head and you go to work. No, you've got to tell me that. Please. Like, oh yeah, all good. Come on. Is that what happened? Wow. That happened twice. That happened twice in three months. So the first one, I was on my way to a concert with friends and there was a no we were stuck in traffic and there was a knock on the window and it was a gun, a yeah. guy holding a gun. Um, I don't know how he was going to hijack us though, because there was traffic. He wouldn't be able to get anywhere. I don't know. Um, and the second one, we were pulled over by police and assaulted by police. But real police or real police? Real police. Real police, yeah. Um, but the point of the story is <laughs> we can the point of the story is in South African culture, you just dust it off, it happens to everybody, go to work. Wow. In Australian culture, it's almost somebody else. It's not even that, it's somebody's got it worse than me. So I'm not mm. going to phone. So South Africa, they go, oh, it happens to everyone. It's fine. Australia, they go, oh, no. If somebody else has got it worse than me, they'll, we'll leave the phone calls to them. They can deal with the EAPs. What's it like in New Zealand? Is there a stigma? Uh, I think the, yeah, I think the, the interesting part of this conversation is, um, and I'll ask you a question back, because what I'm trying to tell the world um, and I mean the world because I do think that genuine mental health um, in your employment will be the future of productivity, happiness. Uh, I firmly believe that, right? But the interesting thing is it, mental health has never been explained properly. Mm. So when I go to Australia, especially you talk a lot about suicide, right? Which we should talk about, but... We, we're mixing up what I would say, um, you know, I had suicidal ruminations. You know, I nearly jumped out of a window one night, but I had anxiety-based depression. I was really unwell for a while. Then I went back into the workforce. Now, um, you know, 4% of the population are going to be born with some sort of mental health issue, but it's actually, it's actually the spectrum that normality is on, and then you get pushed, what I call, off the cliff. I got pushed off the cliff. So... Mm -hmm. We need to tell that story to people. I talk about smoking in the 80s, Taz. You're way too young, right? But in the 80s, we all smoked, man. It's all good, you know, because we actually didn't know how bad it was. By the end of the 80s, we knew that it caused all these diseases and we should not do it anymore. 
right? Mm-hmm. Around, I think mental health is the same, right? Mental health is the same in 2022, and COVID's been the big thing to say. Actually, people, like I was, I was saying about recruitment, why wouldn't we talk about how you deal with anxiety in a, in, when you're recruiting someone? It should mm-hmm. be an open conversation. You should have, how would you like your mental health to be managed when they're being brought on, on board? So I think in New Zealand, we are, we are, we're better with the stigma, so that we're dropping the stigma. But the, re- but the reality is we still think to admit to it is an incredible weakness instead of just normal. Mm, normalise it, 100% normalise it. And I agree with you wholeheartedly about it's the way of employment. I think I believe that there's no such thing as um, work-life balance anymore, work-life difference. There is just life and there is time and we cannot separate the two. And people with life will experience struggle. It's just normal. Struggle causes mental health concerns for everybody. And we know that if we look at the physiological impacts of stress on the body, look how physically ill people are. It normally comes from stress. Um, Mm. But we divert here. What was I going on about in the first place? Well-being, the wellness hub. Yes. (laughs) It's been a natural flow test. It's been beautiful. So, yeah. Okay, good. But That's I how I, I do things. Getting a gun put in your head, girl, is not something that I would like, and I'd be probably had some. You must have had some post-traumatic or something. Did you just seriously get on with it? Um, I seriously got on with it. So I, I have a shopping. <laughs> this is pretty funny. I laugh because humor is my way of coping with stress. So I've got a pretty traumatic background, um, growing up, and that was just one of the things that was. It, it hasn't impacted me. Um, it's not something that startles me since I've moved to Australia. It also helps probably that I have moved to Australia. So that's not one of the things that triggers me is somebody standing near my window. Um, but I will tell you when I moved here and the first time I felt myself go down the spiral because I can recognize my own mental health warning signs. Um, First time I went down the spiral when we had moved here, I went to the GP and obviously being a new GP, you have to give them your whole history. So I gave her my whole history and she went, here's your mental health plan. With this shopping bag of trauma you've got, you're never not going to be in therapy. My professional <laughs> advice is that you we find your trauma therapist and you just go see this person whenever you need them. I never not want you to have a therapist. And I kind of went, That was the first time I realized how different the culture was in Australia, because to me it was, but everybody's experienced this. It's normal. Um, So I love that. And it's completely normalized it for me. It's just, it's one of those things. I'm the first person at work. I'm going, oh, I've got my therapist appointment today, or I'm really not feeling good. Or if somebody talks about something, I'm like, I'll refer you to my therapist. I love them. They're wonderful. I couldn't do without them. It's completely just giving the language and normalizing. Totally. I mean, that's why we, you know, we were called Mentimia. Now we're called Groove. Because if I say to you, Taz, and I'll ask you later on, so don't answer it now, you know, are you in your groove? Because you know when you're in a groove. And I think those warning signs are really important. The warning signs are important. I call it, you know, my AAA battery. When my AAA battery is low, you know, mm. I need to be aware, I need to acknowledge it, and then I need to act on it. So also the action plan is, is really, really important. But w- while doing the research on the beautiful work that you did, I came across a video that you've been involved in um, on unconscious, unconscious bias, right? And I saw that video, and it really affected me because I have a beautiful niece. Her name is Jessica Arkoy, and she is a modern, dynamic woman who calls the aunties and the uncles out, that's me and my sisters, and, you know, she'll say to us, that's a generational racist thing to say, or that's a generational sexist thing to say. But the beautiful (laughs) thing that that did was I had to go away and ask myself those questions. So if you are a conscientious, let's say you're middle-class white, me, right? Most of Australia, I would say, would be run by middle-class white, right? What would your suggestion be? to me, because I am conscientious, I want to change, how do you go in and unpack that unconscious bias? Because it's a scary question to ask yourself. 
It's a really scary question, and I think this is why the DNI, diversity and inclusion, and well-being hand in hand are two very scary, very vulnerable conversations in the workplace. Um, and I think before you can even deep dive into either one of those, although they go hand in hand, is it needs to be a safe place to open this conversation up. So I think personally, when you were talking about your curiosity earlier on and you were saying you're a naturally curious person, so you ask these questions. Um, I think that in the workplace, it's somebody who is passionate about diversity and inclusion it's somebody who is naturally curious and has the empathy that's needed to address the conversation so it's not the empathy to the minority group only it's the empathy to the people that have just realized that they are part of we are part of systemic bias because we are we we know that there's the little quadrants of learning you've got you consciously know you unconscious what's it called unconscious incompetence. and unconscious incompetence when you don't know what you don't know and i think that's where a lot of people are when it comes to bias because i'll revert it back to real life stories of my own if i interview somebody and i say what's your management style i've probably interviewed well over six seven thousand managers i have never across multiple countries ever had a manager say I'm a micromanager nobody says that ever and I think the same goes for being biased I don't think anybody ever says oh yeah I'm definitely biased or if they do it's very rare that they say it and they would even they're even less likely to say it in the working environment nobody's going to own up to it so I think if you can start with the blank slate of saying okay we know this exists and perhaps doing an exercise for everybody. I love doing this exercise. So get a piece of paper and you write down five people's names that you go to either in professional or personal when you feel like the stuff's about to hit the fan. Who are the five people that you go to? Write From their a names business down. point of view or in general? Both. Personal and professional. Yeah. Write those five people's name down. The column next to it is the person's age. Yeah. Person's gender. Yeah. Person's first language. Yeah. And where they fit in socioeconomically. Wow. Everybody, it doesn't matter what your background is, is going to have, well, not everybody, 90% of people will have people that look like themselves and come from similar backgrounds to themselves. And that's across the board. And I think once you go in at a clear slate at that and you go, this is natural. This is what everybody has been taught to do. This is just what we do. How do we build upon this? What is it that we can do differently? How, how can we have yeah, How do you change that, Taz? So how do you change that? So I've just started writing. I've got to four names and I'm thinking, wow, you're right. Mm. But how do I change now then? So are there people within your business that don't fit into that group or people within um, your so social? I've got, a, I've, got a, I've got a combination of um, personal because I don't, I don't do work-life balance. I do life. So, you know, yeah. when, I, when I thought about, well, my wife's one, you know, my co-founder here at Groove, Adam, he's one. You know, uh, another guy um, called John, he's he's one for one part of my life. Another guy called Kevin, he's in it for another part of my life. And then the last one is sort of friendship. Um, you know, that's my mate Ricardo Salik. So we often talk. Um, yeah, they are all, they are all like me. So what I, personally, what I do is, so I write down lists of, because this is a lifelong thing. It's taken you this long to learn your bias. It's going to take you the rest of your life to unlearn your bias, but there's active steps that we can take. So personally for me, I go, I love to be in uncomfortable conversations. So if I walk into a networking room, I'll see who looks like me, who I'm naturally drawn to. And I'll be like, no, I'm not going there. 
and I'll find somebody else that I wouldn't naturally go to. That's an in-person, and then I'll have a conversation with that person. So that's just a tip for example. But if we make a list of the minority groups, so who do you reckon you know the least about? Refugees, immigrants, young people, can I women? Just ask you a, can I just ask you a question? Because I think um, when you talk about it being a safe environment, like I'm feeling, I'm feeling awkward here because I'm worried that I've just revealed a bias. Right? I'm going, is that really a bias? Is that like, so when you say a safe situation, you have this, and obviously I'm not worried, um, yeah. as because I tell the whole world everything, everyone knows um, I'm pretty transparent about my mental health and all that sort of stuff. So I'm not worried about this because I do ask myself these questions. But when you say safe, if you're trying to create this environment, what does that mean? Because if I felt, shit, maybe I have, you know, if I felt that, how do you create that in the workplace? You know, I'm I'm the CEO of a big company, and I'm and I'm I'm looking at this. I'm going okay, because he's not going to feel comfortable with this stuff. So how do you create the safeness before we move on to the next step? Oh, okay. So that in itself is a really big piece too. So creating the psychological safety is all about the weight. Oh, here's a good one for diversity and inclusion into psychological safety. So do your people feel valued? Do they feel heard? And do they feel like they have a right to be there? So that's you creating psychological safety. If your people feel that way, they're naturally going to feel safe. It's the same as how you can sort of, and the way that you do that is through you as the CEO of your business, is you sharing your vulnerabilities. So for example, if we were doing something like this at your offices, we'd say, guys, we want to do this. We know that nobody's perfect. This is just one of our pillars of improvement that we want to focus on. Let's do some exercises. There is, like, there's no judgment here. What I would do is for you as the leader, you could do yours first and you wouldn't even have to divulge anything. You would say, you, you wouldn't even have to share who your people are. You could say, I can see from this, it's in black and white where my biases lie. It doesn't have to be, and it's from the top that people are recognizing that this is natural. It's the same as mental health is natural. To, to wobble and struggle is natural. This is natural. It's learned behavior. It's what we do. So if oh, we can just... Fault, this is not my fault. No. This is not a fault thing. I know, it's but that's, a... where, that's where you go, right? So yeah. that, like, when you feel uncomfortable, you think, uh, 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 you know? So I think when you're talking about psychological safety... I think you did right. You need to establish that. Um, and then the second question you're about to ask me when I went on that little tangent was, where do I think my bias lie? What was that second question? Because I had to clarify safety before I answered it. It started to scare me. Before we went into that. Um, <laughs> so I should have written a note on what that was. Um, no, you're talking so about indigenous minorities so that was the sort of where the all question your different groups that you would go to so which sort of group do you feel like you know the least about um probably uh a lot of our new ethnic groups in new zealand possibly okay. um probably a like a disability person probably would mm -hmm. be somewhere that i would i would uh from, I'm talking about the workspace right now. Yeah. So they would be the, the two ones that I'd know least about. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to discover about diverse uh, religions as well, you know, mm -hmm. religions mm -hmm. that are pushed on us from all sorts of different information. So I guess those three, you know, would be, would be ethnic groups, um, yeah, those three would be me. That would be a good start. So what I would do personally, if we were remembering that diversity and inclusion and how we create the psychological safety around all of this and that awkward feeling and avoiding it and letting the people in the room with you know that it's okay, is having that conversation with them and going, guys, these are the this is the group that I would like to learn more about. And it could be over email, it could be a Teams meeting or whatever. And it's... I'd love a social occasion where we learn a little bit more about this, who in our community, as in our work group, who in our community has a connection to this? 
person with a disability or a person from a different religious background. Let's have, let's have an informal gathering. Let's catch up and have a coffee or let's have for the purpose of getting to learn from each other. So it would be, do you get the show called You Can't Ask That? No. Oh, it's so good. I don't I watch TV. I, I, watch, I watch an odd bit of TV, but mainly sports documentaries, sports, and whatever my wife wants to watch on Netflix. Okay, I don't, well, yeah. you have to watch this one. Make What's it for it like, work research. It's called You Can't Ask That. And basically what it is, is it takes minority groups and they sit on like a, they, there's two people sitting on a chair in the studio and then the community or the viewers have sent in questions for that group. And it's the questions that everybody wants to ask, but nobody does. And then the minority group, two people on the show in the studio will pick up the card and they'll read one of the questions and then they'll answer it. Wow. It's really confrontational, but it is so good to learn from. So if you could reenact something like that, but obviously, again, in a safe space at work, and it's coming from the leader because, as you know, with well-being, it has to be driven from the top. If it's not driven from the top and it's not coming from the heart, it just becomes compliance and it becomes something else that you can either pass or fail. And then you've lost. So how do do we – this is a really important question because – uh, this has even happened to me, and I'm not scared of many things. But sometimes I'm scared to ask a question to someone of those groups because I feel I might offend them, so I end up not saying anything. Because now I don't mm-hmm. know how to say it or what to say it, so I probably should watch that movie. But I don't know how to safely engage anymore because mm. you, know, you see you see some people um, you know, called out on social media as being racist, and I've known them, and they're definitely not but they'll probably ask the wrong mm. question. How do you, how do you do that? If I was going to go into these minorities or, you know, I think if you have the shared purpose and the shared goal, you go into it completely transparent. So guys, for the sake of diversity and inclusion, I'd love us to focus on this. These are the groups I'd like to learn more about. This is a learning exercise. I'd love to learn more from you. So for example, I'm going to use something a bit more, um, probably a bit less confronting and let's talk about age. So for example, if I talk about my dad, he'll say things where I'm like, that is so sexist and ageist and you cannot say that. And he'll go, but that's just the truth. Uh, no, dad, that's your truth. You've got this to feels like a conversation with my niece around with, uh, with uh, my three sisters and me. <laughs> exactly. And then you go, oh, please don't tell me you talk like that at work. Please, Dad. And he's like, no, no, I would never say that. But honestly, what is it? But I know where he's coming from and I know he's got a good heart. But he needs to be educated. However, I'm not going to educate him unless he asks. Because then I'm going to come across as having this woke culture that everyone also goes on about. Um and about being a politically correct generation or whatever they say. Um, yeah. But it's about creating that safety in the conversation. So it's, we know what the shared goal is. We know, I know his heart. I know he doesn't want to hurt anyone. So when you're having these conversations, it's putting it out blatantly. And it's all volunteer. It's all volunteered. It's, I don't know. My business partner comes from, um, or she moved here when she was three, so and she's got Filipino background. And I know that I can ask her anything because she knows that it comes from a place of love and understanding and truly just to understand because I'm curious. Because the more I know, the better I can be. It's as the same as with anything. And so I think it's the tone. So let's, let's flip it now because I know you're also um, involved and empowered, right, which is... Mm addressing um, this issue. So I've been talking about me, but tell me you're working with the, and please, uh, I apologize if I don't get the right, with the Yuringa, Yuringa people, um, what, mm. refugees, indigenous peoples, culturally, linguistically diverse people, women from backgrounds with the domestic abuse, youth, those aging for the workforce, that's me. Um, so, so tell me what your learnings are from their point of view. 
You know, give me, I'm still playing the, the you know, the, the middle-class white CEO. So what, mm. what can you tell me that I should know about them very quickly, what they go through and what's the best way to approach it? Oh, that's such a good question and not a quick answer one. I'll tell you, so the example from Uringa, that's a really, really good one. That's another company that I'm working with, that we're working with. Um, they're indigenous owned and their goal is integrating um, indigenous youth into the Australian workforce. This is something that they know is very long-term. So it's cultural change at really, really deep levels on both sides. So they're looking at a 30-year project. So wow. it is massive, which, yeah. And I think the fact that you've, the fact that they've laid out that it's going to take that long makes all the difference because it's intergenerational change. Um, it's not something that can happen overnight and here you go, there's a five-year tender, go for gold. That's never going to happen. So it's from education stage into tertiary education, into apprenticeships, into employment. Um, and it's working through mentoring. So we know that with the um, Indigenous groups, a lot of it has got to do with elders, mentors, and people that they look up to. So Uringa is Indigenous-owned, and the guy that owns it, he comes from a legal background. So he is that person that guides people through it. Um, definitely part of the change. I think the, the main thing that I've learned through dealing with them, the Uringa group, is about listening. So we say minority groups, but every minority group has got something different that's happening. So it's just about listening to what the barriers are. What is it that you face? And then taking it from there. And then having the conversation with corporates and the businesses and saying, the system was never ever designed for these groups. The system wasn't designed for people that don't have passports or 100 points ID to get just onto your onboarding system. Something so basic. That is the barrier to employment is that they don't have 100 points of ID to get onto an onboarding system. Come on, like we can work around that. Or something like, the system wasn't designed for women who are single parents that have to do either pick up or drop off. So can you make flexible shift arrangements? Things like that. It's really basic things. It's listening to what the barrier is and listening to what people are saying. And that's how you create the psychological safety in those groups is let me hear you. Let me hear what the problems are. And I value what you're saying. Let's find a solution for your financial independence by getting you into the business. And should we as, as uh, business people that are about to employ, should we, should have, if we really care, should we have a set of questions or do we have to know that minority? Because I'm pretty sure if, you know, if I look at the list of people that you're dealing with, right? So I'll just go through them again because I think it's absolutely awesome. Um, you know, refugees, indigenous peoples, culturally and linguistically diverse people. I mean, you're talking about three or four different sets of minorities that would have different sets of issues. So mm -hmm. how does the employer actually do the right thing? Because, you know, let's say I've done, I've done my little test, I've gone out and met some minority groups, but then the, the mental health of those people sitting down in front of me and the logistical things that are going to make their life simpler. So do you have a formula of questions that I should ask that are going to make them feel comfortable to actually tell me about some of their challenges so I can make some of those decisions? Remember, we don't know a lot about them, right? That's the problem. That's exactly what it is. And it's all about asking the questions. And I think the way that you do that is through creating a safe environment. So a safe working culture, somewhere where there is diversity. So, hey, I can see somebody that looks like me. And they're not just over there shuffling paper. They're making decisions and they sit around the boardroom table. So there's somebody with a voice that sits at the table and they can make a decision. There's somebody that I can speak to that will listen to me. Or when I do raise things, um, there's a conversation about it. It's not just shut down. Um, something is followed up around it. 
I think having a shared language, especially. So what does diversity mean for us? Like as a business, it's the same as when you set your values, your interpretation of integrity could be very different to my interpretation of integrity. So until we've defined it and we've created our own language around diversity and inclusion and equity, we could all just be talking completely different languages because you think not, my dad thinks not calling me a blonde bimbo is nice. He thinks he's been great and he's so politically correct. I need, I need to have a beer with your dad. I'm going to have a beer with him. He'll have a bribe for you next time you're in <laughs> Melbourne. Above ground. But which, I know he's a South African fan, but which, which rugby franchise does he follow? That could change things. He was actually a ref for the Lions. Wow. Yeah, oh. the Transvaal Lions back in the day. The, the, the common language one is very interesting. So I'm, I'm acting like a CEO here, right? So I would need to get some help to create that common language from someone within that minority and then teach the whole workplace, this is our common language. Is that, have I understood correctly? Yeah, so not specific. It doesn't have to specifically be somebody from the work, um, somebody from outside, but perhaps it's something you have a group discussion. So you have a roundtable discussion. There's no one person responsible for diversity and inclusion at work. It's a roundtable discussion. We've got representatives, anybody, any ambassador who's interested in it comes and sits at the table and together we come up with our own shared language because we're creating our own culture. We're creating our own groove tribe. Um, and what do we as groove and our tribe, what does diversity mean to us? What does inclusion mean to us? What, like, what is it that would make us feel safe? And everybody gets a voice and it's a brain, it's a brainstorming session, really. I, I, I find this really intriguing because I'll, I'll tell you about a couple of things that are happening uh, in my world at the moment, right? Um, and I want to talk about your world. So we're both in the same world, obviously, with, with mental health. Um, so you know what I'm talking about. But in the diversity one, you know, there's a lot of people who are saying to me, yeah, 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 mental health is and well-being, yeah, that's a strategic pillar. Oh, but I've got no budget. And I'm going, well, hang on a minute. Then it's not a strategic pillar, is it? I can't say that in front of them. I'm going, stop. Stop saying what you should say and just tell me and, and that like there's a lot of there's a lot of you know box ticking going on in this space. How do we mm -hmm. actually genuinely get to this business world to say this is a real issue, people, and you need to do you need to write down your five mates that I've done, my friend. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So how, much, how, how do you break down that that? You know, you, you would have seen them, honey, you go into that business, you go, yeah, you know, you, you're saying all the right things, but actually, you know. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Um, so what's the question? Yeah. The, the, the question was, how do we actually make this way more genuine? Like, I know people <laughs> saying, yeah, we want to yeah. be diverse, you know, like it's no use having the rainbow, you know, no use having the rainbow flag up if you're actually not going to employ anyone from that community exactly. it's no talking about mental health being a pillar if you're not going to spend some money actually on mm. your business doing that so mm. how do we how do we make it way more genuine so i think the way that we make it more genuine is it absolutely has to be driven from the top i think if it's not driven from the top you're going to have to wait until the person at the top leaves and somebody else comes in because you can put a business case in front of them and they can see how it is financially going to impact the business and then they'll go, oh, yes, let's definitely do this. But because they're attached to the financial outcome of it, it's going to be driven down into the business as financial. It's going to be seen as compliance. And everybody in the business is going to hate it and not going to engage with it because now it's just extra work for us to do because it's making the business more money. Whereas if it is human-centered and it's driven from the top and it's not about compliance and box ticking, it's more about... I'm the CEO and I sit in the lunch break room and we chat about whatever. And, oh, what are you eating? I've never smelled that before. Oh, tell me more about your background. Oh, okay. And it's organic and it's human connection. Nothing is groundbreaking here. It's human connection. That's all anybody wants. It's taking away the barriers of skin color, language, financial status. And it's going, I'm a human, you're a human. What have we got in common? 
why are we complicating it then and why are we why are we ticking boxes do you think that's worse. I, I hate i hate when people talk the talk but they don't actually walk the walk me too 100 percent. um i don't i really don't know um i'm thinking of when when i was recruiting at one stage they went through blanking out people's id numbers and names before screening so it took away any prejudices around that um, around culture or nationality and age and those sorts of things but then even when i got to interview stage the bias was still there you, so, have to, well, you just have to about you just about have to put someone behind a curtain wouldn't you so you can't exactly, but then when they rock, exactly but then when they rock up their first day of work <laughs> within seven seconds you've already made your decision <laughs> You're going to put them on performance management and get them out. So it doesn't matter what sort of compliance rules, things you put in place. If it's if the culture in the business is not one of acceptance and inclusion, it's never going to work. So I, this leads me on to what we were talking about earlier about Yoringa and their 30-year project is the way that I see diversity and inclusion and well-being is the same way that human resources were seen in the 60s. I think it was the 60s if my textbooks memory is working. Um, that was seen as a soft and fluffy department. It was, <laughs> what is human resources and why do we need this? Like, we just need payroll. But now, fast forward, how many years? Numbers on my thing, 40, 50 40. years? Yeah, fast 40, forward. 50 years. I was born in 1964. There you go, and I'm 58. There we go. Okay, so fast forward your lifetime. Do you know any company without an HR department? Oh, yeah, yeah, only those small companies, but everyone's got one, you're right. The bigger everybody's companies. got one and everybody sees yeah. the importance of it. So I think that's exactly what it is. It's this long-term thing and we're in it for the long haul. And diversity and inclusion is one of those. And I think if we're having conversations like this constantly and it just becomes ingrained in our workforce and we start with the shared language and the people that come in in the next generation and the next generation and the next generation, it's just going to get better. That's really interesting you say that because I often say this when I'm, I'm speaking to people. You know, when I first reached out and went and saw a psychiatrist, right, and then she introduced me to self-hypnosis, right, and people go, oh, yeah, and I said, man, this is the 80s. You know, there was no Lululemon back there. After the yoga, everyone thought you were a dope-smoking freak. You know what I mean? Like, the times have changed. <laughs> right? So, um, and, yeah, and I think, you know, to be fair on all our HR colleagues and friends, you know, their, their business has changed in the last five years. I remember speaking at a conference where, you know, I was asking at the end how many psychological papers they had to take, and there was nothing compulsory. Right, but mm -hmm. now ninety five percent of their work because we don't have work life balance is now actually personal problems, you know, trying to keep people incredibly mentally well. And they're not skilled for that. That's not what they signed up for. Well, I'd have not. to be skilled in that. That's you know, and that's what I'm saying. Um, you know, and I keep saying this and yelling this: the future of great CEOs is actually genuinely implementing mental health into the well being plan and looking after the minorities and, you know, making sure that we are having these diversity inclusive workplaces. That is the future. If you want to be right. A leader wanna, exactly. If you want to be in business, it's the way it is. It's just the way it's going to be because you look at like, you look at the generations that are coming into the workforce. Now they have a completely different way of thinking. They have a completely different way of thinking. And they've definitely got that instance. Um, they've got just a different sense of self-worth and this instant gratification. And if I'm not worthy, if you don't treat me well, I'll be leaving. And what are you without your workforce? Yeah, exactly. You're not going anywhere. Yeah, no, you're not going anywhere. And I think um, what we're passionate about here at Groove is proving that it's going to improve your productivity. It's going to improve your attention of great people. Um, you know, and I'm pretty sure that if you do the things that you're talking about around diversity, you're going to uncover hidden genius, right? Of course. You're going to do that all the time and you're going to be richer as a business for it. But we do need to prove those things. We know what we need to prove 
um, retain to it with people and profitability because even we get the most cynical people after that, right, Taz? You get even mm-hmm. more cynical people, and I think that's important. At Groove, we talk about, and I'm really looking forward to this, um, these questions for you. Groove, we talk about being in your groove, Taz. Are you in your groove, right? And yep. it's, based on the, it's based on the six pillars, so it's based in clinical science. It's what I call my daily mental health plan, but I want to ask you about your groove. So here we go. What do you do to chill? Cool. So the first groove is, is things to relax. For me to chill, I'm outdoors, doing something really slowly, like walking slowly or sitting or yoga, somewhere beautiful. The beach, the gardens, the lakes, outdoors and slow. That's wow. me chilling. What do you do using your mind to be creative? I paint and I write. Oh, wow. That's beautiful. Yeah, I, I, and I'll just I'll just say to people that technology is taking away our moments to actually be creative. So, you know, you can instead of looking at your phone, you can start a painting, right? And this is mm-hmm. what we have to battle with. You know, pick up the paint, even mm-hmm. if it's fifteen minutes. So I think that do is a really good one. Hey, even if it's ugly, it's about the process. Amen. Amen. <laughs> How do you like, connect? How do you connect? So staying in touch with people that matter. When I need connection, I I phone my gran in South Africa. Um, I speak with her a lot. She just comes with a wealth of knowledge, and I just love her. She just got a she's just got a different perspective on life. Or if I need connection, I speak with I play I consciously play with my three year old, like I'm a three year old. So I get out of adulting, and I don't see it as a chore. I just play with my kid. There's a beautiful Māori saying that says, if you want to have hope and faith in the future, you must always stand on the shoulders of the past. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where, you, you know, my mum who passed, she was an incredibly wise woman. Like, you know, and if, and this is a stereotype, you know, she was a mum. Um, she was mm-hmm. a, a, a stay-at-home mum, you know, and you probably wouldn't put wise next to her. But that's just a prejudice because mm. it was incredibly wise. Move. What about move? Getting up and about. What do you do to move? My daily practice, I walk um, because I just love it. I love the movements of that. I find it really meditative, actually, to be on the move. I practice yoga. And if I need to move, like, I'm in a funk and I feel like I need to move because I know my body. If I move my body, my brain gets better. Um, I dance. I'll just put a dance song on and just dance which which is your favorite dance song oh there's a song by rufus de soul which is not really my style of music at all but it's called inner bloom um it's just really different and just yeah it's a good one to go to when before the podcast we were talking about music and connection and connecting to your past so i just thought i'd talk about talk about that now so music is you said you listened to a podcast that was really interesting. Mm. Yes, the podcast was. It was a Tim Ferriss one. I think it was like yeah. 583, but he was interviewing wow. Suzanne Kane. Yeah. And she talked about the spiritual connection that music has. It's like music um, in a, I think she did neuroscience, but music lights up the same part of your brain as spiritual connection and meditation, a certain type of music. Wow. How the frequency impacts us. Yeah, no, because I uh, music moves me. Like I don't mm. like in the car, very rarely, maybe to family members, but m- normally I'm listening to music that moves me. I'm always finding music that moves me. It's incredible. And do you, um, so are you moved by music of a different language uh like yeah so, so yeah so i i would i would recommend people to listen to a um aboriginal Torres Strait islander called garamul have you heard of him he no. passed away it's one of the most beautiful documentaries you'll see he was a blind aboriginal man and his voice is what i would call haunting in a beautiful way they did a beautiful documentary on him um, and his people, uh, his people let the documentary stay out there, although it's not 
good in their custom when someone's passed. But his he he, he was like his voice is unbelievable. So and I listen, yeah, I listen obviously because I'm I listen to uh, Italian music. So yeah, I do. Um, how do you celebrate? How do you reward yourself? This is something I should probably work on. Um, I don't celebrate in material ways. That's not something for me. Normally, if something exciting happens, like when this podcast is done, I'm going to feel really happy about it. I'll do like a little streak, like yeah! happy dance, and I'll go hug the closest. Like the first person I see, I'll hug them, and I'll be happy, and then I'll be moving on to the next thing. <laughs> oh, that's so good. So you you don't wait to celebrate. You do it straight away. That's a great idea. I'm going to do that. Yeah, it's wow. instant. Yeah. Um, enjoy something you do just for you. I'm a sucker for the performing arts. So live music and theater events. Love, 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 love. And One of the look- reasons I moved to Melbourne. Really? How, how, how beautiful is Melbourne? <sighs> it's I was just- there two weeks ago and it was like, um, I, it, it's, it's, it, it felt like Europe. Yes, it does feel like it was Formula One week. The people were buoyant. And um, so I've got some quick fires. Okay, go. What book are you reading? Uh, It's called On Combat, The Psychological and Physiological Impact um, During Times of War and Peace. It's a really good book. I know. I'm really heavy. And when I need to, when I need to um, unwind and read something, because I have multiple books on at a time, um, yeah, I'm reading The Beach by Alex Garland. Yeah. Yeah. So that one's my, that one's also about PTSD, but oh well. Yeah. <laughs> nice. What podcast are you listening to? Uh, I've just finished that Tim Ferriss one, but I also listen to a lot of Brene Brown's things. Podcasts. I love her podcasts. Who should we interview next? Ooh, you should interview somebody within your community from a minority group that you want to learn more about. I will. Okay, done. Done. I will do that. Pick someone. Okay, I will. I will pick someone. And then they get to ask you anything too about you and your stereotype. I hate this. Don't make me too, feel too uncomfortable. This is the third <laughs> time now. And, and this, I was supposed to come on the podcast and make you feel uncomfortable. And you made me feel uncomfortable. No, no, I'm only, kidding. I'm only kidding. I'm only kidding. I'm really passionate about these things. And like I said, um, I think that when you've got an unconscious bias, the first thing to do is to be safe with yourself and say, it's okay. It's not my fault, but I want to change and I'm prepared to change. And I think that... Mm-hmm. Um, for me, I'm passionate about the future of business being genuine mental well-being in the workplace, and genuine, a genuine um, look at diversity, and mm. making sure it is amongst our business. Because you know, people say to me, um, "I'm a New Zealander, right?" But I'm also a Pacific Islander. Mm. Right? I'm a Pacific Islander. That's what I am. Mm. I live in the Pacific. I know my. Mm-hmm. I did, you know, my, my, my past, but I'm a Pacific Islander. If you come here tomorrow from, you know, and you're a refugee, you are now a Pacific Islander. You're coming to, so we need to embrace that. So this has been, I can't even believe, but that's sort of like an hour. As you've like, that's, but that's been, that has been absolutely amazing. It's been intriguing, interesting, uncomfortable. uncomfortable. Don't you feel good? I feel Can good. You, you've made me feel good. You've made me feel good. And I've got a couple of work-ons, right? And I think, you know, we are all talking about this stuff. You know, we're all we're all aware of it. We just don't know how. It's like the mental health space. You know, everyone's aware of it. But, hey, put great mental well-being into your workplace and you will be a future leader. Yeah, we're talking about minority groups. We don't know how to act sometimes. So all this information has helped me with a little bit of a plan to go and action it. So that I'm not an unconscious bias. You're conscious of your bias. Yes, that's what we want. We just want to be conscious of our bias. Exactly. And I'm a bias all black fan. So you can tell your dad that (laughs) 
I'm looking forward to the championship this year because we haven't seen any South African teams on our shores for like three years. We don't know what it's going to be like. I know. Oh, I can't wait for that. We should meet up at a game. Done. That is a deal. Let's do that. That is okay. a deal. Okay. And thank you for your time. It's been fantastic. Thank you for sharing your space with me. I've really, really enjoyed this conversation. We'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Open Minded. If you like the podcast, make sure to subscribe. This podcast is everywhere you get your podcasts, so make sure you do that. I don't need to tell you how, and then you'll get my new episode straight away. And if you can leave a review, tell everyone you know about it, it'd be awesome. If you could help spread the word about the show, thanks. But also, I'd love to get your feedback. You know, I'm new to this. I want to get better and I want to know what you want to know about mental well-being. So please reach out to us and thanks and I'll see you all soon.